Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Wednesday the 31st of August 2022. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month you'll get to hear Dr Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what's up in the sky for the month of September. Lots of things are up in the sky for the month of September, and finally we've got lots of things happening in the evening sky, so you don't have to really get up too much in the morning to see the bright planets. We'll start off with a couple of highlights. Jupiter is at opposition, so Saturn was at opposition last month, Jupiter's that opposition this month, uh, but Saturn's still really good, and they're both prominent in the uh, late evening sky. Uh, Mercury is still prominent in the first half of the month, from roughly about mid-month, so there's lots of things happening in the evening. Venus has unfortunately lost to view this month, so we won't get to have it. Well, I'll start off with the moon, like I always do. So on September the 4th, we have the first quarter moon. September the 11th is the full moon. September the 18th is the last quarter, and September the 28th is the new moon. So early in the month is good for dark sky objects. Late in the month is good for dark sky objects. But the middle of the month will be dominated by moonlight. The moon is at perigee when it's closest to the Earth on September the 8th, so we don't have a perigee syzygy moon this month. And apogee is on September the 20th, so we don't have an apogee moon either. Let's have a look at the planets in the evening sky. So Mercury is still highish in the evening sky. It remains high in the first half of the month and rapidly heads towards the horizon and is very soon lost to view. So it's now visible uh, after astronomical twilight uh, when the sky is fully dark. Now, astronomical twilight is an hour and a half after sunset, so that's really quite a long time to be able to uh, see Mercury. Uh, by an hour and a half after sunset, Mercury is low above the western horizon or relatively low, it should be still fairly easy to see. But of course, as weeks wear on, it starts sinking towards the uh, twilight. By mid-month, it's best seen an hour after sunset. That's nautical twilight. 
and by the 20th, it's it's uh, headed into the low of civil twilight, half an hour after sunset, and then by the 23rd, you basically can't see it at all. Okay. And it'll return to the morning sky late in the month. Again, you'll be better off seeing it in the next month. Okay. Sadly, our Mercury doesn't come close to anything interesting, although around about mid-month, the bright star speaker is visible above it, and it doesn't get to see the moon in this month. Although if this recording goes out on the 30th of August, it'll be a very good time to look at the western sky because the moon will be just above Mercury and will be very, very nice to watch. Okay, I can do that. Now, Earth is at our equinox. For us in the Southern Hemisphere, it's the Spring Equinox. And for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, it's the Autumn Equinox. And that's on the 23rd. At this time, a day and night are roughly of equal length. If you're relatively close to the horizon, the uh, ecliptic is almost uh, directly east-west. Now, let's go back to Saturn. Remember, Saturn was uh, at uh, opposition last month. And it's now visible all evening long. Setting in the early morning, but it's still, uh, 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 or I should say, setting in the late morning. So if you want to be doing telescopic observation at about two o'clock in the morning, it's still an excellent time. So when the sky is fully dark, Saturn is uh, readily visible above the northeastern sky, so easy to pick up. And by mid-evening, Saturn will be high enough for telescopic observation. Saturn forms a shallow triangle with uh, Delta and Gamma Capricornia. Uh, this is a very shallow triangle which becomes shallower and shallower and more like a line as the month moves on. For those of you who are viewing uh, Saturn telescopically, on the nights of the September the 6th and September the 17th, uh, Titan, the, the, the large moon Titan, is very close to Saturn and easily visible in small telescopes. The, uh, a halfway decent telescope, the dance of the uh, Saturn's planets are um, quite good to see, although it's a lot harder to see these rather than opposed to the bright, the four bright Galilean moons of Jupiter. On the morning of the 8th and the morning of the, of the 9th, the waxing moon is close to Saturn. So just in case you don't, uh, I mean, at, at the moment, Saturn's an area there aren't very many bright stars, so the bright yellow object in the mid-northeastern sky close to two dim stars is Saturn. But if you're still not sure, on the 8th and the 9th, the waxing moon is close to Saturn. Yep. Now, Jupiter's rising shortly after the sky is fully dark, but it does take a while before it climbs high enough for you to see it readily. It's an excellent telescopic object in the late evening and early morning. Now, Jupiter is at opposition, again, when it's biggest and brightest as seen from Earth on the 27th. This time, Jupiter will be visible the whole night long. On the 11th, Jupiter rises just below the full moon. So on the evening of the 11th or the morning of the 12th. Uh, and the pair will be in the same binocular field with Jupiter only two degrees away. So if you've got uh, wide field telescopes, be able to get Jupiter and the moon in the same shot. Now, Jupiter's moons will be excellent viewing, but there's a number of, of uh, nice uh, Jupiter moon events occurring on September the 3rd, 13th, 
uh, 19th, 22nd and 28th. On September the 3rd, Europa and its shadow will be on the face of Jupiter, which will be very nice to observe. This is around about midnight. On the 13th, we have Io and its shadow on the face of Jupiter, with Callisto just above the um, Jupiter's pole. On the 19th, you have a, a nice uh, a, a view where uh, Europa go, is close to the Jupiter, then goes into eclipse as it goes into Jupiter's shadow. And then on the 22nd, you've got uh, a nice pattern of all four of the bright Galilean satellites on one side of Jupiter, which would be very nice to see. And on the 28th, you have Europa and its shadow, again, crossing the face of Jupiter with Io close by and then and Ganymede as well. So it looks very nice indeed. So a great month to check out Jupiter's moons. A great month to check out Jupiter's moons. In binoculars, it'll look very nice too, although the ones where I mentioned where you've got uh, the moon going across the face of uh, Jupiter and its shadow, you won't be able to pick up uh, that with uh, binoculars, but you will be able to see the, the, um, the moon getting close to uh, Jupiter and then disappearing as it, as it goes in front of, the, of Jupiter. I'm not so too sure about the eclipses, though. It, the eclipse might be far enough away from Jupiter that you should be able to see the uh, the moon blink out uh, as it comes very close. If you've got a, a nice high-powered binoculars, low-powered binoculars, it'll, it'll, it'll disappear into Jupiter's glare before you can see the eclipse. So lots of exciting things happening with Jupiter. Uh, sadly, Jupiter is not near any bright stars, so it's not going to form interesting patterns. But I think just being close to the to the moon, as well as all the uh, the, moon, the uh, Jupiter moon events, will make a very interesting viewing. Excellent. Uh, let's turn to the morning. Now, as I said, Venus is lost in the twilight, and we won't get Venus back until December, where it turns up in the uh, evening sky. Mars is steadily bright, brightening as it nears opposition. Uh, and because it's in an area devoid of bright stars, uh, it's uh, readily visible. Of course, now I've said it's in an area devoid of bright stars. We're going to talk about a bright star. So uh, at the moment, Mars is between the cluster, two cl open clusters, the Pleiades and the Hyades, very beautiful clusters. And so from about the first to the third, Mars is passing between the Pleiades and the Hyades. This will be a very excellent morning sight. And Mars forms a second eye toward the bull. This is the uh, bright star, which I just said wasn't around. So the red star, Aldebaran, and Mars will be visible together. So it's going to be very obvious if you look at the A shape of the Hyades with the bright red Aldebaran forming uh, one arm of the bottom of one arm of the A. And then on the other side is the uh, little uh, cluster of the Pleiades. And smack between those two is red Mars. Very obvious. And if you watch over the next few nights, Mars will move away from the Pleiades and the Hades and keep on moving away until it gets into, for most of the month, an area devoid of bright stars. It starts off a close to a bright star, but for most of the month, it's going to be in an area devoid of bright stars. Cool. Okay. So on the 17th, Mars is just under five degrees from the waning moon. And if you've got a, a moderate magnification pair of binoculars, it'll probably see, 
being just seen together in these binoculars. Okay, I'm going to go through the moon and planet conjunctions again on the 8th. The moon's close to Saturn. On the 11th, the moon's close to Jupiter. On the 17th, the moon's close to Mars. That's an uh, excellent time to uh, look out for using the moon as a, as a guidepost to the bright planets if you haven't already worked out where they are. Excellent. Okay. Just to round up the stars, uh, Scorpius the Scorpion is still relatively high in the sky, although it's beginning to sink into the west. Sagittarius is still reasonably high with the centre of the galaxy in view. And uh, uh, again, uh, the uh, Sagittarius uh, features an asterism called the teapot of Sagittarius. It looks quite obvious to us uh, tea drinkers that, it, uh, that the central part of Sagittarius is a teapot. And near the lid of the teapot is the uh, bright globular cluster M22 and the Tripitan uh, Lagoon Nebula. So good hunting there. That's the western sky. The eastern sky is currently not got very much bright or interesting in it. However, uh, if you're uh, up late, you'll begin to see uh, the Scorpion's nemesis, Orion, arising. And Orion is the herald of uh, the coming of summer. And so by the time Orion is visible in the evening sky, we'll be uh, well, well into spring and heading into, uh, heading into summer. And the other thing is uh, galaxies. Uh, the Andromeda galaxy is rising late in the evening. It's at its highest throughout the after midnight. So from the southern hemisphere, uh, it's scraping along the horizon, but you can still see it readily in binoculars as bright nebulosity. At the same time, the small Magellanic cloud is at its highest, and the iconic uh, globular cluster, 47 Ducana, is almost directly south. Uh, so easy, very easily uh, seen if you're out somewhere dark. Look to the south, look up, and you'll see almost directly view south this little patch of light and a fuzzy star just above that, and that's 47 Ducana. Our other galaxy, our other satellite galaxy, the Large Magellanic Cloud, is rising as well and should be very easy to see around the time that the Andromeda galaxy is at its highest. The iconic for us, Southern Cross, is going to be low above the horizon. And so the, the uh, interesting dual blocks uh, cluster will be very hard to see. It's going to be very hard to see um, Omega Centauri as well. But the clusters around uh, Carina will be still real, uh, readily visible and you should be able to view them in binoculars nicely. So early in the, in the uh, month, while the moon is still waxing before first quarter, uh, that's a really good time to uh, hunt around the, the clusters around Carina. Then the middle of the month, the moon will wash everything out. And then by the end of the month, those clusters of nebula and cleaner are getting lower towards the horizon, becoming much harder to see. Very good. Now, do you have a tangent for us for September, Ian? I do indeed. I do indeed. Now, if I can uh, get you to cast your mind back to the uh, tangent I did in the last Astrophys, I talked about how all the stars in the sky are moving. 
moving very slowly. So to see the constellations change significant requires tens of thousands of years. Uh, but we can see a couple of the stars move. The most famous one being Barnard's star, which, which basically hoots across the sky. And it only takes a, a couple of hundred years to uh, move the uh, distance of the full moon, which in astronomically speaking is very speedy indeed. Aside from the wanderings of planets and comets, the occasional outburst of a nova or supernova, the starry firmament is, firmament is pretty fixed to the unaided eye over periods of millennia. Another exception, of course, we're going to give you another exception now, are variable stars. Now, most stars are of fixed brightness to the unaided eye, but some stars change brightness on a regular pattern that we can see with the unaided eye. The uh, Arab astronomers of Algol, the demon star, which blinked every two days, 20 minutes, 20 hours and 49 minutes. And they knew of Mirror the Wonderful, which changed in brightness every 11 months, going from being unable to be seen with the unaided eye to be visible to the unaided eye for about one to two months. Indigenous astronomers are also aware of the slow 400-day-long pulsation of Betelgeuse, which, of course, recently shot to fame due to its spectacular dimming. Uh, we think this is due to a large mass ejection which obscured its surface. Uh, and intriguingly, after this uh, uh, huge disturbance, Betelgeuse is now pulsing faster. Uh, it's uh, not quite regular anymore, uh, so it's... It's pulsing around about 100 days with some cycles shorter, some cycles longer. But which brings us back to another feature of stars is their colour. What about colour? We know that as star ages, their colour changes, uh, how much and how far depending on mass. And, and this colour change occurs as the star burns through its hydrogen, especially the hydrogen at its core, and the transition from burning core hydrogen to core helium is oh, yeah. associated with um, uh, quite uh, important changes in colour. So it, giant stars uh, typically start out as blue-white, then tra transit to yellow as they continue to burn their hydrogen, and then, and then they become red as they burn up most of the hydrogen in their core, and these trans uh, transits to uh, red giants. Now, uh, our star, well, uh, Earth, Earth star, the Sun, do something similar. It's currently a yellow star, and in something like five billion years, it'll start becoming a uh, a red giant and, uh, and swelling up as it changes uh, what it's burning in its its core. Yep. This transition from, uh, from uh, yellow to red as the uh, as burning changes uh, can take a long time, thousands of years. Yep. Now. We've got lots of stars in the sky. Uh, is there any evidence we've seen stars change colour over thousands of years of historical observations? So this brings us back to our friend Betelgeuse. Remember our, 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 our bright red star, which uh, everyone got excited about, uh, thinking that maybe it'll go uh, uh, supernova uh, because of its uh, pulsations. In a recent paper, a group of astronomers, uh, this is, if anyone wants to look this up, this is uh, Neuhauser et al. 2022 from the Royal Astronomical Society, uh, looking at astronomical records spanning thousands of years, describing the colours of stars. Now, of course, this is not straightforward. Seeing conditions can affect colours of stars. For example, if you're looking at a star low on the horizon, 
atmospheric weathering will make it wetter than it would if it's going to be high. And also, uh, ancient astrologers may not necessarily be uh, particularly uh, diligent in recording colour. Uh, there's also a whole range of cultural inferences. The way uh, cultures describe colours can vary somewhat. For example, there's a, a, a we differentiate blue and green. But there's a number of cultures that see, that use the same colour word for blue and green. So, deciding uh, what uh, colour uh, is being reported in an ancient text uh, corresponds to a modern colour uh, can be quite problematic. And so, but uh, what they did was to look at those records where they compared the star, uh, Betelgeuse, to uh, another co uh, coloured object where you're fairly certain you know what the colour is. And so they uh, looked at descriptions and typically in the oldest uh, records, for example, uh, Roman records and ancient Chinese records around about uh, 30 BC and 15 AD, Betelgeuse is described as being yellow comparing it to Saturn. By about AD 138, it's being reported as reddish, but uh, a dim red star rather than being a bright red star. And by AD uh, 1440, it was around the, the colour and brightness of Antares. So that's all very well, but maybe it's just variations in how people were, um, were uh, looking at them, but maybe they were just looking in, uh, in a different way uh, when they were comparing Betelgeuse and um, Saturn. So they looked at a uh, comparator for um, Antares, the rival of Mars, and Antares is consistently just being described as being red like Mars, unlike Betelgeuse, which is being described as yellow like Saturn. And over the same period of time, and often in the same records, Antares retains the same colour names and and to some degree, the same uh, uh, brightness recording over that same period of time. So, again, uh, while to most, most of us would be immortals, um, sitting on the ground, the fixed stars are not only fixed in position, but also fixed in colour. If you look at the historical records, you can see at least for uh, really blindingly obvious stars like Betelgeuse, you can record uh, the, the changes in colour that occur over literally thousands of years. And this has also important uh, implications by understanding the tr transition of Betelgeuse from uh, yellow to red. It gives us important clues about the rate at which uh, uh, the hydrogen helium burning transition is occurring and also gives us a better understanding of when eventually uh, uh, Betelgeuse will become uh, go uh, supernova. Sadly, tragically, at least for us, uh, Betelgeuse is not going to uh, explode uh, anytime soon now. Possibly we have to wait another 600 to 800 years before it will start going bang. Okay. Right. Well, <laughs> Don't wait up. <laughs> we'll have to hang our hopes on Eda Karina then. Yes, we'll have to hang our hopes on Eda Karina. Uh, that was that's that's a, a, actually going to be an interesting talk for another day. Uh, uh, Eda Karina and what's happening there.
things that go bang, and we will have to do an episode on that. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astro Blog Musgrave. Another fantastic month to get out there and look up and enjoy the sky. Indeed it is. There's lots going on. Um, uh, I'm sure we'll have lots of fun. Excellent. Thanks, Ian. No worries. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. You have a good night and a good week, and hopefully you get some clear skies to have a look at the planets. Indeed. Cheers. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free, and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. And a special treat for listeners in two weeks when we meet an amazing Persian astronomer working at the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Florence and at Italy's famous National Institute for Astrophysics and Astronomy in Arcetri, near Florence. Amir Nazemamiri gives us a wonderful interview and tells us about his PhD research into ionised gas and metallicity measurement in both star-forming and active galactic nuclei galaxies. Don't miss it. See you then. Radio Wave!